You are listening to The Overwhelmed Brain. Today's episode is brought to you by GetOutOfTheMess.com. Let Asha, your Legal Shield associate, connect you to a legal insurance plan that's right for you. Quality attorneys at established law firms for about $20 a month. Are you annoyed by affirmations? Are you tired of that same old, rehashed, personal growth advice that all seems to boil down to, think positively and all your problems will go away? If affirmations feel like lies and positive thinking feels like denial, then I want you to get ready. The Overwhelmed Brain is here to help you create the life you want now. Welcome to The Overwhelmed Brain. I am your host, personal empowerment coach, Paul Coliani. I am here to help you increase your emotional intelligence, strengthen your self-worth and self-esteem, and empower you so that you can make decisions that are right for you. Everything I talk about on this show is my personal opinion and is meant for informational and educational purposes only. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your medical treatment. And if you notice something a little different... If you've been listening a while, you probably realize that I've changed the intro a little bit. I don't know, probably stick. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe it'll stick around. Uh, I wanted to make it shorter. I wanted you to be able to get to the content faster. So I updated the intro a little bit so I can shorten it because, you know, I could say all these other things like learn, heal, grow, and evolve. Um, but it's assumed. You know, when you listen to an educational podcast, it's assumed you're going to learn something new, hopefully, and grow. And with an emotional intelligence show and personal growth, you hope to find healing. And I don't know, I could explain it, but um, just the explanation has now surpassed the time it normally took for my intro. (laughs) So I'll get to it. I won't explain this intro next time. I just wanted to let you know that the little change there. And um, now I can get to the actual first topic at hand, which is about the last episode's first topic, where someone tried to con me. And I talked about how the sales clerk came up to me and my girlfriend were at the uh, music store and he gave us a hug and he treated us uh, really kind like he always did. But every time we went in, there was just something a little, I don't know, we got that feeling like he was trying to pull the wool over our eyes. And I talked about it in last week's episode, and I won't get too deep into it right now. You can listen to that episode if you'd like. But um, I received an email, and I I knew this was going to happen. At least one or two people out there were going to write in and say, I'm a salesman, and we're supposed to do that. And why would you yell at that person when they're just doing their job? I knew something like that was going to happen. And I could have addressed that in the last, I I might have, I might have addressed that. I could have addressed that in the last episode more deeply, but I didn't really want to for a number of reasons. One, I felt it wasn't too relevant because the point I was making in that episode is that, hey, when you feel like you're being deceived or conned, it's okay to stand up for yourself and say something. And yes, there's a possibility that you could be wrong. And that you could be called out when you say something to them and and they go back and say, what? You're you're completely wrong. This is what I meant. And that's fine, too. You can open up that dialogue. Now, it might seem hurtful if you're wrong. And that's why I was sort of nervous when I expressed myself very assertively 
to this salesperson who acted very much like our friend, and then he tried to deceive me with an upcharge. But the point about uh, feeling nervous is that what, at least I, this is how I approach this, what I am doing and what I like to continue doing is testing if my instincts are correct. And sometimes that is a leap of faith. Sometimes you might be wrong, but I'm willing to bet that most of the time you're right and that we don't end up trusting our gut instinct and then we just assume that we're wrong and the other person must be being ethical, must be being uh, doing moral things that won't be against us. And a lot of people get away with a lot of stuff, <laughs> quite frankly. A lot of people in our life who do try to lie to us and deceive us often get away with it because we are not keen enough on our own instincts and trustworthy enough of our own instincts to actually follow through and see what happens if we trust them. So that was my angle. And I told you the first reason I didn't talk about, you know, salesperson doing his job and how people might get offended that I'm putting someone down for doing their job and things like that. Well, I, I could have addressed that on the last episode deeper uh, for that first reason. But the second reason is also that I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to explain every single little micro detail of the situation. And I might get some disagreement here, and that's fine. We can agree to disagree. I shouldn't have to address every single micro behavior, uh, comment, or choice that I made and the reasons for those choices. Because there's a certain point where you can get so wrapped up in the minutia of explaining something that you lose the purpose of the lesson. And I didn't want to do that. So that's, that's two reasons why I didn't really get into handling the idea that someone might get upset that I might be talking about putting someone down for doing their job. Because it really wasn't about that. It wasn't about someone doing their job. It was really about the deception and how I perceived it. Aside from that, I mean, that's relatively unimportant what I just said. Maybe I should just delete it out. <laughs> Aside from that, I did get a letter. I did get an email that uh, when I read it, I was like, whoa, okay. Now it's addressing uh, exactly what I thought it would address. It, it is the person who wrote wanted to call me out and say uh, 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 some things that I did that were, I don't want to say wrong. I think the words are stronger. <laughs> In fact, let me just read it to you and then I'll let you make up your mind because I did respond to this person and I explained a bit more of the situation and she understood and she goes, oh, now that I have a bit more information, that makes sense why you might have behaved that way. But let me just uh, read you this letter and there's a reason I'm reading this to you. One, full disclosure and transparency. When someone calls me out, I'll read the entire thing on the air and let you decide. Because I'm not here to defend my actions because I really believe that what I did in the moment was a personal growth lesson for me and also walking my talk about my own boundaries. But this letter writer saw it a little differently, so I'm going to read it to you. And this is from someone I'll call um, Mary. Mary says, good morning. I started listening to your podcast this year and generally much of, much of your advice and insight resonates with me. That being said, I was listening to your podcast this morning around trusting your gut 
and I found it to be the most cringe-inducing thing I've ever listened to. It felt like the first 30-plus minutes were you using your podcast as a platform to brag about a time that you had the guts to call someone out in the most superior, smug manner I can imagine. This entire show is just a confirmation of the cynical paranoia that you have used as a band-aid to your previous spineless existence. I have no... I am not making this up. (laughs) I have no connection to said salesman, but think about it. That poor guy is likely following the rules of the road set out by his manager and was doing his job. And parentheses, frankly, a little better than others who are trying to sell cheaper products. It's a consumer's responsibility to do their research, ask the right questions, and ensure they're getting the right deal. It is not the salesman's responsibility to pander to people who are not doing their due diligence. Thus, you did the right thing by asking about the warranty, but that does not make you enlightened or superior. That makes you a good consumer. The gut feeling that you described was simply the right amount of cynicism that any consumer should lean on when being sold to. I am just embarrassed that you use this example to demonstrate an incredibly important topic and strategy that people could surely benefit from. Please keep producing elevated content that actually helps people, not content that is meant to highlight your own paranoia-leaning growth. Thanks, Mary. There you have it. (laughs) What would you do? How would you respond to that letter? Let's just say that you got that letter from Mary and you felt that um, your response in the moment, uh, the one I described last week, was appropriate and even empowering to you. Would you take offense? I mean, how would you handle that? Now, I'm going to read you my response to Mary to help bring some closure to this. So if there's anyone out there that really feels like I was pretentious or felt, um, I don't know, self-entitled or enlightened or smug or whatever thoughts went through your mind, then hopefully this, my response to her, will help you understand from where I'm coming. And I'll explain it a little bit after I read it to you. So here's my response to Mary. Thank you so much for your comments, Mary. I knew there would be some commentary on how I handled the situation. I appreciate your honesty. There's a point in any relationship where the manipulation that's been occurring starts to be revealed and you have a choice to not take it anymore and call someone out like I did, a road many people may not take, or continue being deceived, knowing you are being deceived. We've known this salesperson for over a year, and almost every time we visited the store, we got this odd, bad feeling when he helped us. Even in this visit, as soon as he saw us, he came over and took us to the microphones in someone else's department, right next to the guy that would have helped us and also made a commission from us. We both noticed how unfair that was to the salesperson who actually worked in the microphone section. We know almost all the salespeople in this store, so it was kind of sad thinking that he just took the other guy's commission. And thinking back, maybe this was an opportunity to call him out on that, too. You're right about one thing. I did brag. It's true. (laughs) For the first time in my existence, I did grow a spine. And just a quick note, that's not the first time ever I grew a spine. I just wrote that in this context where a salesperson is trying to show up, upcharge me, and uh, I never really commented on it. I would always be the person that goes, oh, I didn't want that. And then they would take it off and apologize. 
And then when I think about it later, I realized, oh, they were trying to do that on purpose to upcharge me. So I've not gone to this level of calling someone out before. So for the first time in my existence in this context, I did grow a spine. And I go on to say, you are so right about that. I felt really, really good about standing up for my boundaries and letting someone know that what they were doing was unethical and not what friends do to other friends. There's a lot I left unspoken and perhaps details that you'll never understand from my perspective and because of being a coward in most situations in life. In that moment, I felt empowered for the first time in a long time. I was nervous honoring my boundaries with someone who was deceiving us on several occasions, but I felt good after doing it. That's the message I want to share with the world, that it's okay to honor yourself and call people out that are trying to manipulate you. And you're right about another thing. I did feel superior. You're so right there. But I didn't feel superior to him. I felt superior to my former self. In many other situations, including many interactions that both my girlfriend and I had had with this particular person, I felt conned and I regretted how I behaved in hindsight. So thank you again for taking the time to share this. I agree with some of your comments and disagree with others, but I honor your opinions and absolutely reflect on them. And as always, in full transparency and disclosure, I will be reading your email to the world next week so that just like I called that salesperson out, I am subject to the same type of exposure and judgment. I think that's fair. I appreciate you, Mary. So there you have it. That was my response to Mary. And like I said, she wrote back and said, okay, with that extra information, I can understand your approach now. Thank you for clarifying that. I thought that was nice. And uh, she also said, you know, I really appreciate your show and she's learning a lot from it. So uh, if you're listening now, Mary, quote Mary, (laughs) I appreciate you and I thank you for calling me out. So I hope my response was enough to help you understand that I don't feel, I mean, this is my personal opinion, I don't feel like I was coming from this highly enlightened perspective. I felt like I was coming from a place of personal power that I felt so good in myself and I wanted to let the world know that you can feel this way when you get to a point where you just don't want to be conned or deceived or lied to anymore that you can actually stand up for yourself and say, no, this isn't right. That's what I felt in the moment. That's what I felt when I was talking about it last week. It was all of that uh, personal power coming up in me and making me feel uh, alive, making me feel good. And um, I'm going to give you an analogy that is very exaggerated. (laughs) But uh, uh, coming from a history of uh, me always avoiding confrontation and always people-pleasing. I mean, that was my history, being that type of person. And having these opportunities to confront and not people-please and honor myself. The analogy I want to give you regarding this is that I want you to think of, and I'm, I'm not just talking to Mary, I'm talking to anyone that's listening now. If you've ever been beaten so much that you just can't take it anymore, you're either going to have a breakdown or a breakthrough, or I think they're one and the same usually. And then you finally change your life. It's like um, when I was around 10 years old and I was wrestling with this bully kid that wanted to be my friend. We were at my house and he, um, we wrestled a little bit. We were just little boys wrestling and 
Uh, it was okay, but you know, I didn't like this kid and he always came over and wanted me to be his friend. And I, of course, was a people pleaser and just acted nice around him and never confronted. And uh, I just pretty much um, did what he said because I feared what would happen if I didn't. Well, after we were done wrestling, I sat down and I was, I don't know, reading a magazine or something. And uh, he came over and said, let's wrestle some more. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. No, come on, let's wrestle some more. Come on. I'm like, I, I really don't want to. And then he starts slapping me in the face lightly, but it was very irritating. And he's like, come on, slap, slap, slap. Come on, let's wrestle some more. Come on, let's wrestle. Slap, slap, slap. I don't know what came over me, <laughs> uh, but I kicked into some other realm of being. I got up, punched him in the face, <laughs> and he went down. And it was so strange because I sat back down and continued reading the magazine. <laughs> it was almost, I hate to say it, a psychotic moment, but it wasn't. I mean, I wasn't out of my mind. It was just, you get to a point where you can't take it anymore and something else takes over. It could be that fight or flight where you go, I will not sit here and allow this to happen any longer. I am going to get up and stop this right now. I had never thrown a punch in my life. I didn't even know where to punch. But somehow, <laughs> some part of me knew. I got up, punched him, he went down, I sat back down, and um, I don't know how long he was down there for, but, you know, it seems like minutes, but I'm sure it was only seconds, but uh, he got back up, don't know what he said, I don't know, I don't remember too much after that, and he went home. That's the kind of feeling, like I said, this is an exaggerated analogy, it wasn't so physical. But when you grow up and you're an adult and you try to handle things in a more adult manner, you become more assertive. You become assertive and calm, but clear, concise, and try to express yourself in a way that's understood. And that's what I did. So I felt like that was my opportunity to experience this breakdown of being continually deceived and have a breakthrough of finally standing up for myself in a calm, assertive way. And I still say I felt pretty damn good about it. So if that's seen as smug or arrogant, I don't care. <laughs> I felt really good about it. And I even kept the door open for our friendship and said, we can get past this. I left that door open because I didn't want to make an enemy and I didn't want to leave thinking that I'm superior because I wasn't. We are the same people. I have the absolute ability and I have done the same thing he's done. Continuous deception, continuous manipulation, continuous uh, ways to steer someone to my selfish ways, to, to what I want from our relationship. I've done that in the past and it's probably why I started getting that feeling when he started doing it. Because if you've ever been there, you can see someone else doing it. So I didn't like it. I didn't want it. And I wanted to stop it. And I wanted to read Mary's message because I wanted the opportunity for you to judge me. I do. I want that opportunity. I want you to uh, hear last week's episode, hear this week's episode, and form a judgment about me. Not that I want you to be judgmental, but it helps me become resilient. When I get messages like this, it helps build that resilience and it helps me reflect on 
how I responded, how I behaved, and then revisit my responses, my reactions, and form another opinion from sort of outside myself and look at that and go, hmm, could I have done anything differently? Should I have done anything differently? And then when I can reinforce what I did, it makes me feel even better. It makes me feel even more um, confident in trusting my intuition next time. Or if she had stated something that I really did need to address, then there's an opportunity to address it. So I am grateful when I receive any type of criticism, feedback, or even anger. I mean, from her letter, it sounded angry. Of course, that's how I read it. She may have had no anger. (laughs) She just used what some people might call aggressive words. Which brings me to a little tiny subtopic of this, which is when you read emails and texts, you often put your own inflection on the words. So when I read her message to me, I don't know if that was her inflection. And it's quite possible that I exaggerated some inflection just to make it sound a little bit more juicy. (laughs) But I don't know. I mean, no matter how I read it, it'll probably be incorrect because I didn't write it. But I think it's important to understand that when you read a message from someone, that the type of inflection that you put on it can change the meaning. (laughs) Inflection is vital to understanding someone's message. The inflection of a word can change the entire meaning. It's like the, um, I visited a restaurant the other day and uh, I went into the bathroom and the bathroom said, employees must wash hands. And I thought that's an interesting sign because someone may actually misread that sign. It's probably not going to happen, but it could where if they read it to themselves, like I tend to do in different inflections, just to try it out. uh, I read the employees must wash hands signed. And I said, what if I said that with a different inflection? So I repeated the words and said, employees must wash hands. (laughs) Meaning they must. I mean, why wouldn't they? So it became something else instead of a command. You know, if you just read it without inflection, employees must wash hands. It sounds like a command. You must do it. It's a requirement. But if you read it, employees must wash hands. (laughs) You're pondering. You're wondering if they wash their hands. So I know what the sign meant. But it gave me this um, enlightening moment, I guess you could call it, of, you know, how many letters and emails have I read in my lifetime, even way before the overwhelmed brain, anyone that has sent me anything that I deemed uh, angry or negative, where I put on my own inflection on the words. Even reading Mary's letter, she said something about spineless. So I immediately want to read the sentence, one of the sentences that she wrote in an exaggerated inflection, like, This entire show is just a confirmation of the cynical paranoia that you have used as a band-aid to your previous spineless existence. (laughs) I don't think she wrote it like that, but I don't know. And depending on how I read it to myself will be how I respond to it. And I think that's vital to, to remember is that sometimes people are going to send you messages or a letter and you're going to read it with the inflection that you feel is the meaning, and it will affect how you respond. So what I do is try not to inflect too much. 
This entire show is just a confirmation of the cynical paranoia that you have used to band-aid your previous spineless existence. I could read that and go, hmm, is she right about a spineless existence? I wouldn't use those words. That's an interesting adjective. But I've certainly uh, been uh, spineless in certain ways, people-pleasing, non-confrontational, not wanting to address important subjects. Would I call it spineless? Well, it's a nice umbrella word, I guess. <laughs> but some people might see it as a very negative comment. Like, you yellow belly spineless <laughs> coward, draw your weapon. You know, you can you hear these things in movies and such. But anyway, the whole point with inflection is just be aware that when you inflect that you are giving meaning to what may not be the meaning behind it. And uh, going back to Mary's letter real quick, she ended her letter with something positive. She says, please keep producing elevated content that actually helps people, not content that is meant to highlight your own paranoia-leaning growth. So it's not like she wants me to go to hell. <laughs> she wants me to keep producing elevated content. She says it in a way that might be offensive to some people, but I fully support whatever opinions or expressions that you have about me. But I come on the air. I put myself out there. And you have every right to say anything you want about me, even if you're wrong. <laughs> so I hope this is helpful to you if you're in a position where you feel like it's time to step up, stand up, say something, be assertive, but be kind. You know, you can be assertive and respectful at the same time. That's what I like to practice, and I hope you practice it too. And this is all about empowering you and stopping people from injecting their toxicity into your life. I don't want that. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back with another topic after this. encourage you to check out getoutofthemess.com. Asha is a representative for Legal Shield, and she joined the service several years ago herself because, you know, she had some legal issues come up, and she found out that not only could they help her with her existing issues, but um, as she stuck with the service, almost anything that she felt like she was being bullied or pushed around or it was the big guy against the little guy kind of thing, she was able to call Legal Shield and get the help she needed. If not just advice, um, a letter or a phone call or something that she could send to the people harassing her that uh, resolved the problem. Like she told me of a friend that she has that is dealing with some images on her website that uh, someone is trying to claim copyright ownership to. And the person removed the images from her website, but the company or entity that, that um, complained about it in the first place wants to sue her and is threatening her unless she pays them, even though the images are gone. I mean, she complied, but they're not backing down. So Aja's like, why don't you just use this service? I can connect you with it right away. <laughs> and the girl's like, well, I don't know. I'm going to do, I'm going to talk to my attorney and we'll see what we can do. And I just want to do this thing right because, you know, so on and so on. And I was just like, yeah, but these are attorneys. These, you can have a law firm assigned to you, and all they would do is probably just send a letter and it would be over. 
And this woman's like, yeah, but I don't know. I, I just want to deal with um, someone I know. I'm like, you're going to be, how much are you paying for your attorney? She said something like, I don't know, 200, 220 an hour or something. And she goes, all you have to pay is 20 bucks a month on this plan. And you can have an attorney send a letter at no extra charge. She's like, yeah, I'm just not too sure about that. And she's like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's up to you. And she doesn't push it on anyone. Uh, but when she sees a scenario unfold for one of her friends that could clearly use a service like this, she talks about it. And that's why she loves it. She uses it herself. She talks about it whenever someone has an issue and she goes, oh, you should try this. And um, the people that she's turned it on to love it. So I think you'll love it too. I think you should check it out. Go to getoutofthemess.com or call Asha and ask her if this will be right for you. It's in the U.S. or Canada. They're not quite worldwide yet, but if you're in the U.S. or Canada, give her a call, 678-355-8777. She's not going to sell it to you. She doesn't need to. She's just going to tell you what it's all about and answer your questions to determine if this service will be right for you. Again, 678-355-8777. Okay, I've got a real challenging one for me, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll see where we go with it. I made a couple notes because there was uh, something I needed to figure out, and I'll, you'll understand in a moment, but here's the letter from someone I'm going to call um, Cindy. Hi, Paul. First off, I'd like to thank you for your podcast as helping me through a difficult breakup. I was so in love with my partner, but suffered from deep anxiety about his commitment or lack thereof. About six months in, he was unfaithful to me, and then he broke up with me without telling me. A month later, he came back and confessed, said he'd been selfish, hadn't known what he wanted, and now he wanted to try again, for real this time. I was ecstatic he'd returned, but several months later, I realized that neither of us had been prepared to reunite. At first, things were great, but it quickly became obvious that I had not had enough time to heal from him abandoning me. I have a fear of abandonment that stems from emotional neglect as a baby. His fear of commitment and his disloyalty exacerbated that fear and made me paranoid, anxious, and depressed. He had still not fully addressed his own fear of intimacy, and in small ways, I felt rejected every day. Over time, he did get better at prioritizing our relationship and showing me affection, but for me, the damage had been done, and he was still not on the same page as far as being in, as invested as I was. Though by the end, he was much more invested and felt more for me than he ever had. However, I did not feel supported, comforted, or safe. I ended it. I hope that we can get back together someday when we have both grown, but I'm struggling to accept that we may never. Is it possible for someone who has anxious attachment and fear of abandonment to be happy with someone who has an avoidant attachment and fear of intimacy? This is the uh, part I had to figure out. <laughs> I had to like write this little formula. All right. While attached, I am anxious and I fear abandonment. Okay. So that's her. Him is I avoid attachment and I fear intimacy. Okay. I, I have a little bit better understanding now. Uh, she goes on to say, is it possible enough for me to heal enough to become secure? If we do get back together, will we be in a never ending battle with him pushing and me pulling? 
How do I give myself enough closure to love myself and find a safe place inside myself? Every time I feel inspired to do so, it's because of my hope that it will end with he and I together. What can I do to change that motivation, whether he comes back or not? Or I meet someone else or remain single so that I am my own first priority and I am my own motivation to be secure and happy. Would love to hear from you on the podcast. It's truly been a great help to me. All the best, Cindy. All right, Cindy, thank you for sharing that. That is um, quite a situation because you have two kinds of characteristics in your personality that are not very complementary. And what I had to figure out, um, because my brain doesn't work as fast as some people, (laughs) is when you said, uh, someone who has an anxious attachment and fear of abandonment to be happy with someone who has avoidant attachment and fear of intimacy. So, like I said, I wrote this down. You, while attached, are anxious and you fear abandonment. So, I'm going to assume that your anxiety comes from the fear of abandonment. So when you're with someone, you are probably very clingy. You're probably emotionally needy. You probably want more attention and support and love and uh, eye contact and lots of other things that emotionally needy people would want in a relationship. I'm not saying emotionally needy is bad. I'm more emotionally needy than not. (laughs) But uh, what happens is that there's a certain level of attention, connection, touch, talk, everything that helps you connect with your partner to make sure that your partner still loves you. And that typically is where I come from. Like I need that connection to make sure that my partner still loves me. It's like a reinforcement, always looking for that reinforcement. I've learned to work with this in myself. I don't think it's a character flaw. It's just how I'm made up. Maybe I had a lot of love for my mother as a child, and I've been looking for that really close attachment ever since. Or maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't have enough love, and I'm always looking for that close attachment. I don't know. I'm sure that's probably what it is. (laughs) But uh, the idea is emotionally needy people need more. So this push-pull that you're talking about, yes, it might exist. Let's uh, explore this a little bit. He avoids attachment and he fears intimacy. What does the emotionally needy person want? Attachment and intimacy. So you're right on track with that. Is it hopeless? No, because I'm pretty much in a situation myself where I'm more emotionally needy than my girlfriend is. And I'm assuming because of her childhood sexual abuse and and how she was raised, it probably created more comfortable being attached and not as intimate as I would want to be. So there are differences at times like that. It's not always like that, um, but there are ways to work with that. There are ways to nourish the relationship and create more times like that. That's what I've been doing for several years now with my girlfriend. And we both know our quirks. We both know our characteristics. We both know how we show up in a relationship. So it's helpful to know this stuff because when you talk about it, it's already known. It's already out on the table. So in answer to your question, yes, it's possible for you to be in a relationship with someone with this kind of dynamic, but it's not easy. In fact, it might be very difficult depending 
on how needy you are and how much fear he has. But in order to do so, in order to create a good relationship out of this, you know, assuming that you get to a point where you trust him again, because that is like the first obstacle, the betraying, the cheating, especially when you cheat on someone who has a fear of abandonment and who is emotionally needy, it's a lot harder to get to a point where they're healed enough where you can have a healthy, happy life together. Because if, if you're not healed enough, Cindy, then you're right. It's, it's going to be very difficult to stay in a relationship with him because that's the first thing that comes up. Anytime there's any type of, oh no, he's on the phone with someone, the first thought in your mind is, is this going to happen again? That's typically what happens. So the more worried you are about it, the more it's just going to uh, plague your mind. But like I said, there is hope. And if you are building that trust with him, if you decide to get back together with him, here is what has to happen. You have to show up in the relationship without needing a lot of attention. And he has to show up feeling safe enough to connect with you without feeling smothered. That's hard to do for both of you. (laughs) You have to show up without needing a lot of attention that is so difficult for the person who fears abandonment. They want the attention to remind them that they are worthy, that they are important, that they are loved. They need that reinforcement. They need more attention than most. They need more eye contact than most. They need more sweet words than most. They they need more reinforcement, more reinforcement. Again, it's not a bad thing because there are people out there who are willing to do that, who can be that way for you. But now you're talking about someone that will will test your limits. Can you go for hours, days, without getting the kind of attention that you really want? Because if the answer is no, then this relationship cannot be. It will eat away at you inside. You'll feel sick because he's never going to give you enough. You'll always feel like it's never enough. And then you'll be in the up and down roller coaster of, oh, he finally gave me what I was looking for. I finally have that connection and intimacy. And then he takes it away for three days. And then for three days, you're in that down space and it becomes very bipolar. You're up, 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 and then you're down, down, down. Again, this is if you don't change in a way change in the sense of, hey, I don't need a lot of attention. I just have to know that we're together and everything is as good as it gets. That's a hard place to be for someone who needs more attention to, who needs to feel important and connected more often than not. And for him to show up without feeling smothered, without feeling like he has to be intimate all the time. That's a challenge, but what happens is if you are, and I hate to use the word smothering, I'm sure that's not what you're doing, or maybe it is, but the more clingy you are, the more smothering it feels to the person who doesn't like constant intimacy. So if he can feel safe enough not to feel smothered, where you are not being clingy, then it's possible that he will feel like connecting with you more because I find that um, 
people who are emotionally disconnected more often than not and don't like feeling smothered, the more love and attention you show them, the more they want to run away, the more they want to get away, the more they want to get out of that situation. It's too much. I just can't handle it. And, you know, he could have a history where love equals pain in some respect. And that often comes from abuse. Like, I love you and I'm going to hurt you. And suddenly you equate love with pain. And so that is possible. And the earlier that is in your childhood, the more prevalent it is typically in your adult life. So for him, love might equal pain, which is why it's important to have him come to a place where he realizes that love isn't painful. But the only way to find that out is if he explores it on his own. And he may never get to a point where he opens up fully. So even if you're in the ideal situation, you're not seeking as much attention as you used to. You're not seeking all the um, loving words and loving looks and you can handle that. He may still be in a place where he doesn't want to connect as often as you do. And eventually it will, it'll wear you out. You won't, you won't like it. So right off the bat, um, there's my thoughts about if you two can create a relationship together. But you know, you bring two extremes of the opposite ends together. It's possible. It's just harder. If you are both willing to work on it, then it can work. But um, as you said in your letter, you're still not healed from this abandonment and you call it abandonment, but there's also a betrayal. I I think you should explore that too, that betraying that he did with you can be very powerful and uh, hurt a relationship very much. So if there is a level of trust that you have built for him and that has got to a point where you can now trust him at least to, you know, a high percentage of the time, then you can usually work out the kinks from there. Now, for your other questions, let's see what I can do with this. Um, I'm not sure. (laughs) Is it possible for me to heal enough to become secure? Absolutely. You can heal enough to become secure. That's a yes or no question. I can get into a little bit more, but I'm going to read the next questions because I think I can answer that question with, um, with the answer from another question. Let's go on. If we do get back together, will we be in a never-ending battle with him pushing and me pulling? I, I kind of answered that already, so I probably shouldn't have even read it. <laughs> How do I give myself enough closure to love myself and find a safe place inside myself? Okay, so that goes along the lines of, uh, is it possible for me to heal enough to become secure? I think the question you want to ask yourself is, what causes me to not feel safe? In myself. One of the answers that come up for me when I try on your situation is I need all this love and attention and feeling of worth from outside of me. So that's why I seek it from people in my life. If I can get love and support from someone else, then I feel more whole. I feel more complete. So maybe the closure you're talking about is a way to feel more whole or complete and finding a safe place inside yourself. I mean, that those are very specific words that tells me that you don't feel safe inside yourself or at least partly. So ask the question, what 
about you do you not feel safe with? Or what's inside you that you don't feel safe to be around or to be in? I want you to answer that question first. Now, you do go on to say, every time I feel inspired to do so, which I think you mean um, giving yourself closure to love yourself and find a safe place inside yourself, it's because of my hope that we will end up back together. I understand the want, the need, the desire to be with someone else. I understand that there's a lot more life that you can experience when you're with someone else. You can feel more alive. You can share experiences. You can be more happy. You can be less stressed. There's a lot to say for being in a relationship with someone. But there's also a lot to say for being comfortable with yourself. And so there's something in you that you're not comfortable with. There's something in you that when you're alone, when you're single, something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel complete or whole. Where I usually go with clients when they bring that stuff up is I immediately go back to their childhood. I want to find out when this started. When did you first realize that you don't feel safe in yourself? When did you first realize that you don't like being alone or left alone? Because when you connect those dots, when you go back in time and you realize that there was a point that this started, you'll start to unravel why it has a hold on you so much. For me, I, I look back at my past and I go, you know, I never wanted to be connected to any of my family. I always like walked around the neighborhood or walked several miles <laughs> to a bowling alley when I was like 11 or 12 years old. I would just walk and walk. And being at home was kind of a, um, you know, I had the alcoholic stepfather and I had family that I couldn't connect with sometimes. And I don't know, I had fun at home. I, you know, I remember good times, but I also remember that I wanted to get away from home more often than not. And so being alone for me was something I enjoyed. And a lot of people enjoy that. Some, some people out there just, you know, they enjoy being alone. I'm not saying that being single is fun for 10 years, but being alone is different than being single. When you have alone time, you have me time or you time where you get to connect with yourself. That's why I'm asking you the questions about why you don't feel safe in yourself or what about yourself is unsafe or what's preventing you is a good question. What's preventing you from feeling safe within you? These are all questions. I may not have the specific answers or direction for you. But these questions will help unlock something that may be, you know, blocking you inside. You know, and, and here's another question. Who do you think had the most influence about you fearing being alone or fearing abandonment? I'm willing to bet it's a mom or a dad. And uh, there, this might take some one-on-one -on -one work. This might take someone actually walking you through a period of time in your past. And uh, like something I teach sometimes, which is uh, visiting your inner child. When your inner child uh, first experienced these feelings, for you to go back in your mind's eye as the adult you are today and give her what she's looking for, give her what she needs, talk to her. And that takes some quiet time. And you can do this on your own. You can go back and visit and start to build a foundation that she never built when she was a child. It does feel like time travel because when you do this, you can start putting some pieces together that weren't there so that when you get out of this visualization, 
you feel a little bit more whole, complete. So that's one little method that you can take with you. And your last question, um, what can I do to change the motivation whether he comes back or not or remains single so that I am my own first priority and I am my own motivation to be secure and happy? I'll tell you what I did. I chose to be single. I chose to not be in a relationship because I wanted to experience what that was like. I wanted to experience what it was like to not have anyone else to rely on but myself. And I've heard from people saying, yeah, but I've done that for many years now. I'm sick of it. (laughs) I get it. I get it. But if you haven't done it yet, I want you to try it. I want you to make it a focus to be single. And always ask yourself the question, even if you're in a relationship, what would I do if I was single? What would I do today if I didn't have anyone else to be responsible for? Because that gives you some insight on what may be missing in your life. Just like you, Cindy, if you never met this guy and you never developed a relationship and you were single, what would you do tomorrow? What are your thoughts? What are your ambitions in life? What are your desires, your goals, your dreams? All of these questions are important. I think most of the time we go around thinking about that person, that person that affects us now. So what would happen if that person never existed? What would happen if you never met? then what would you do? What would you say? This helps you start thinking outside the the trappings of negativity, like negative thinking. Like if you're in the trappings of all that negative thinking, then you're limited in how you think and what you think. And so that's what I want you to do is just my answer to you is a bunch of questions. (laughs) Besides the one specific one I talked about where there's the push and pull of the relationship. But Um, The rest of your questions are very valid and they're very personal. And fear of abandonment is huge for a lot of people. And emotional neediness is huge for a lot of people. But I always go in the direction that there's something that your inner child, the person that you were when you were very young, that was never fulfilled or resolved. There was something that you needed back then that you never got. And so you go through your life trying to get that from other people. And that's why I think it's important to do this visualization where you visit yourself and give you what you needed back then. No, it's not real time travel, but the brain works in mysterious ways. And if you start visualizing, because that's part of your brain, which is part of your body, which is part of the entire system, then it changes your thoughts and feelings and old patterns create new patterns, new neural pathways and new ideas and suddenly you feel differently. But it does take some work on your part. It does take some quiet time and really addressing what comes up for you because there may be other things going on inside of you that maybe you've held down, maybe you've repressed. Always find a safe person to express to And say things that you don't want to say. Say things that you're embarrassed about, ashamed by, feel awful about. All these things that are inside of you that you hold down typically keep you in a place that doesn't feel very good. So when you start expressing that stuff too, that's like a conduit that starts getting this negativity out of you as well. There's a whole bunch of stuff that I can reference, but um, start with this and see where you go with it and send me an update. I'd like to know how your life is going, and uh, this may involve something more one-on-one, something more personal. We can certainly work together. Just reach out to me. You know how to get a hold of me. 
Otherwise, I hope this helps. Thank you for sharing all of that. We'll be right back. read you another email really quick see if I can um, give you some insights on this one this person wrote uh, I find that I'm a huge oversharer. I tend to volunteer way too much information even when it isn't being asked for sometimes there may have been a cue from someone else showing interest but sometimes not one of the problems I have with this is that I end up sharing personal information or details about my personal life that I don't actually feel comfortable sharing with the person and then I regret it later Sometimes it leads to a conversation that I'm not comfortable having. The reason I'm writing to you today is because this just happened to me recently. Once I did it, the other person started asking questions, trying to know more. I already felt the instant judgment in their voice. Then they started giving me unsolicited advice that they did not have a place to tell me. However, instead of stopping the conversation, my automatic reaction was to answer their questions, responding to what they're saying, and then I found myself justifying and defending myself. I can't seem to control myself in these situations. I think a part of it is coming from the people-pleasing part of me, and another is needing approval. I've been mad at myself since for even saying anything, and then for continuing to let them get information out of me that they would use in telling me what to do. This made me especially mad because this person barely even knew me. However, this does happen with people close to me sometimes. How do I stop oversharing? And also, how do I stop letting what people say get to me so much, even people who don't matter? Thank you so much for your help, Paul. All right, well, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> and in fact, you're asking the wrong guy because I tend to overshare. <laughs> if you've listened for a while, you know what I mean. But I, I get what you mean. I, I don't really overshare. Um, I actually have uh, limitations and filters, I would say, built into me. But I had to develop those filters. I had to understand, uh, at least from the perspective of a coaching broadcaster, whatever you want to call me, that when I share stuff, A, is it valuable to the other person? B, is it condensed enough where it's not going to be all over the place with all these different subplots and side stories? Uh, and C, is it even interesting? To anyone else. This is an interesting topic to me and uh, I talked about it with my girlfriend a little bit because she has a tendency to have people come up to her, or at least she had a tendency for people to come up to her and try to fix her. You know, we would have friends over and we would have discussions and sometimes a friend or two would want to fix her instead of share their experiences with her. Or uh, speak of their own growth and healing. For example, um, she would share something that might bring a tear to her eye. She might start crying a little bit, and she's sharing something very personal, very private, because she trusts the people that she's with. But then somebody would say, well, here's what you should do. And then they would go off on teaching mode, and it would suddenly make her feel unsafe, as if sharing were not a good idea because the people that she's with that she thought she could trust and express without someone trying to fix her is now 
being used against her. Like she shared not looking for guidance or advice. She shared in hopes to express it and knowing that these people are trustworthy. And, and all our friends are trustworthy. I'm not saying any of them aren't. But sometimes every now and then, uh, including myself, I've done this. I want to help someone else. Now, what my girlfriend calls that is codependent. <laughs> when someone wants to help someone else, uh, giving them unsolicited advice, thinking they know better, uh, it can come from a codependent place. Now, you mentioned people-pleasing. People-pleasing is a very codependent thing. Hey, if you're happy and I can cause you to be happy, then that will make me feel better. I am going to affect you in some way to make my life better. Therefore, I am dependent on you changing, which I am going to help facilitate so that you can make my life better. And my life can, I don't know, stay the same and I'm happy or change so I'm happier, whatever. So that kind of response that you're talking about, where somebody responds to what you're sharing with uh, advice, especially stuff that um, you've already dealt with. For example, um, you know, I lost my cat uh, several months back and it was, I was sad and I was going through some stuff and some tears came up, you know, not on the air, but I was going through this in my personal life. So I want to be able to share this experience with friends and family without them going, you know, you really should go outside and get in touch with nature. You know, you really should take some time to yourself. You know, you need to find balance. I don't need to hear any of this. I'm not saying it's unwelcome, and I'm not saying that I would be upset, but I don't really need to hear it. Unless I said, I just don't know what to do. Do you have any advice? Then I'm open. But sometimes just the expression is the release. I'm saying, I'm so sad, and I can't believe my life is going to be different now because for the last 20 years, I had the same cat. He was my best friend, my best buddy. We did everything together. It doesn't mean I need help. It just means I'm being expressive. And you are probably being expressive. Now, here is the problem. <laughs> uh, is And this is something that my girlfriend mentioned because uh, she's actually dealt with people trying to fix her more than I have. Uh, not that she needs it. It's just that she has been more apt to connect with her emotions when she's expressing and have those emotions come out while she's expressing. So people see that, especially codependent people, and they want to help. They want her to be happy. I mean, it's all noble intentions. Just like your people-pleasing self might want people to be happy. So you're going to try to help them or fix them or do something that makes them happy. That's a codependent type of behavior. What my girlfriend said is that most people really don't care about the details of your life. I mean, yes, there are a lot of people that do, <laughs> and then there are people that don't. They want the snippets, and they want the maybe the emotions connected to those snippets, and maybe they want to know you're okay, but do they need to know that it was last Monday, the 22nd, uh, at 8.30 p.m. when you got out of the shower and then you dried off and then you brushed your teeth and then all this little minutia to share with someone that really doesn't affect their life in any way. 
do they need to know that? I mean, I understand that's what you're asking is that how do I stop this oversharing? Well, I don't think there's a problem with oversharing. I think there's a problem with whom you choose to overshare. Because just like my girlfriend said, there are people out there that just don't care. They don't care about the minutiae. They care about some stuff, but they don't care about the minutiae. And from what you said in your letter, that this person you barely even knew. So not only are you sharing some maybe important stuff in your life, but you might also be sharing a lot of minutiae that if they don't know anything about your foundation or really don't care, then it might not seem valuable to them. So my point is, I know this sounds a little odd, but my point is that we have to almost treat people as if they really don't care about everything in our life. And I hate to say that because it, it kind of minimizes relationships, but I like this approach. And I even practiced this approach last night. And I don't really have to practice. It just comes naturally now because I've done it for so long where I was in a group um, and uh, we were talking about some recent racially charged events and the subject of racism was a very heated topic and all kinds of uh, side comments and topics come out of that. So everyone was going back and forth and I really stayed silent through the whole thing. And then finally, somebody asked me, uh, hey, what is your opinion? I would like to hear from you. And I stopped and thought and I go, well, I got a lot of opinions. <laughs> and everyone laughed. Not that I'm like highly opinionated, but I think it's just the way I, I don't know, timed it felt like a joke or something but <laughs> so um i i expressed myself and i was very clear to the point and um i tried to keep it short and then someone commented on it and then everyone started talking again but i had other opinions and i had to ask myself is it so important that i be heard and i think that's a good question is it so important that i be heard in this moment because wanting to be heard is, you know, maybe it could be a thousand things. But let's just point out some dysfunctional things. A cry for attention. Wanting to feel important. Wanting to feel worthy. The more they know about me, the more they know about my story, the more worthy I feel, the more um, a part of something bigger, part of society, part of this person's life that I feel. Because I share more with them. And over the years, and this is why I've said I've practiced this, over the years I've realized that my opinion is really not that important. <laughs> and it has helped me. It doesn't mean my opinion really isn't important, but I choose to believe that nobody really wants to hear my opinion until they really want to hear my opinion. It doesn't mean I stay silent all the time. If there's something I really feel strongly about or I really feel will add value to a, a conversation, then I will speak up. But I have an evaluation process in my mind. Like, if I say this, is it really adding to the conversation or is it me just wanting to be heard? I go through this little juggle in my mind and if it's kind of both, like, yeah, I would like to be heard. I would like someone to look at me and go, wow, that's a really good opinion. That's a really good comment. So there's a little ego there. And at the same time, it makes them think like, wow, that not only was that a good comment, but now I'm uh, reflecting on the, some of the things that I believe, some of my perceptions. And uh, I, I really appreciate that. 
So it's kind of a win-win. I, I get a little ego boost. Yeah, that's still there. <laughs> Every now and then, a little, nice little ego boost. And at the same time, it, it's uh, something that would be valuable. But that's a, an evaluation system that I have built up in my life by practicing silence, by practicing listening, by practicing very few words. You know, it's funny, like I said, I was talking to my girlfriend about this and I said, you know, I remember my first interview on another show where they interviewed me. In fact, I think it was uh, Scott Barlow. If you've been listening to my show a while, he's been on my show several times, but um, he's with Happen to Your Career. Go to happentoyourcareer.com forward slash brain. <laughs> but I was married uh, during that episode and um, at the time I asked my wife, hey, did you listen to my interview? And she's like, oh yeah, I, I listened to it. I was like, oh boy, that, <laughs> that inflection, I can already tell it wasn't that good. And I said, oh, oh, what did you think? And she goes, well, you're kind of boring. And I was like, what? I thought I was on. I thought it was great. And I decided to listen to it myself. <laughs> you know, I did the interview. I didn't think I had to listen to it. I was in it. But I decided to listen to it from an objective standpoint. And when I listened with different ears, I, I almost fainted. <laughs> That's an exaggeration, of course. But I, I heard myself talking and talking and talking and talking out of context and not getting to the point and then getting to a roundabout point and realizing that what I was speaking wasn't really valuable. Half of it wasn't interesting. And I felt embarrassed, a little humiliated, and I realized, oh, crap, I just helped him record a lousy episode, and now he's going to uh, play it to his audience. I really was uh, very critical of the things I talked about, and I think at that point I wrote to him, and I was like, I just listened to our episode, and I am so sorry. <laughs> he wrote back and said, what are you talking about? It was fine, and I was like, no, I don't understand how you can see it that way. He goes, no, it wasn't that bad at all. And I was like, really? Okay. And he made me feel better. But uh, it taught me a valuable lesson. I was able to listen to it and go, oh, I hear what my wife hears. I understand where she's coming from. And it was super valuable to me. Because uh, if you're ever a guest on someone's show, what I've learned is that you really have to summarize and condense and be to the point because they only have so much time. If it's a half hour show and they have 10 questions for you and you spend 20 minutes answering the first question, that's a problem. So I realized at that moment, listening to myself, that it's vital that I learn to condense, be to the point, and only give value on other people's shows. But that moment, I was also able to uh, do that in my personal life too. I was also able to create a new pattern in my brain that helped me understand that what I'm saying, most of it, a lot of it, is not that interesting. Does that mean that I'm not an interesting guy? No, it's just I need to avoid minutiae. I need to avoid some of the things that aren't of value to the other person in some way. Now, this isn't with anyone. My mom would probably listen to me 24 hours a day because she's interested in everything I say. 
of course she knows my foundation my upbringing more than most people do so that's a different story but a complete stranger doesn't know me from adam just wants more value how does this affect me how does this bring value to my life how can this change my life so being on that show helped me understand that i need to condense and as i think about it i'm really extending this segment <laughs> condense what i'm saying and bring value to the other person not just on shows but to a conversation and this has been a really eye-opening uh, experiment for me because what it's done is allow me to realize how much garbage comes out of my mouth i'm not saying what you're saying is garbage i'm not saying oversharing is garbage I'm saying that it uh, can be minutia. It can be little bits and pieces. My girlfriend calls it ADHD. If I share too much, it's because I'm having an ADHD moment. I'm thinking out loud. My brain's associating things. And I talk about my son, which reminds me of dirt bikes, which reminds me of who buys the dirt bikes, which reminds me of my ex-husband, which reminds me of... And then all these little side paths that she takes in a story to finally get to the point can happen. But it has helped her to realize, and these are her words, that most people don't give a <laughs> And I think that can be helpful. I think that can be helpful to have a, a perspective that most people are in their own world and they only need so much data, so much information, and that really, my opinion isn't that important. I don't know if this is going to help you. <laughs> if it does, great. Uh, I have learned that when I go along the belief system that my opinion's really not that important. I mean, I'm talking about in conversations and, uh, you know, in other social situations. This show might be a little different. I'm trying to teach. I'm in teacher mode. But, you know, if you go along the lines of, hey, my opinion's just not that important, it isn't so important that I need to uh, interject and be heard because if it really is important then i will feel really compelled to tell it so as far as oversharing and what you can do i think my only piece of advice is probably something that you may or may not do all right do i only have one piece of advice i don't know the first piece of advice or maybe the only piece of advice we'll see what comes to mind is to record yourself in a conversation this is hard. I mean, it's not hard to record yourself. You can do it on your phone. But this is hard to listen to. <laughs> if you've never done this, record yourself and listen to it. Because what's going to happen when you listen to yourself is that as you listen and you go, why did I say that? Why did I bring that up? You're actually going to create associations in your mind that help connect you with more end results. In other words, you're going to hear yourself talking, which is going to be reminding you of how the conversation went. And you're also going to be connecting feelings to what you shared, maybe negative feelings. And these negative feelings will help rewire your brain, to put it simply, to help you feel these feelings when you're talking. So that when you start oversharing next time, you'll get into that mode of remembering those feelings and maybe be able to stop yourself. It's going to take some practice. If you can't find a way to record yourself, and like I said, all cell phones, you can get an app or the, the app is built in, you can just hit record. 
and uh, leave it on the table or whatever. If you choose not to do that or you don't want to do that, then also practice listening and staying in listening mode and asking questions and staying in asking question mode until somebody asks you a question. The idea is pacing. A good way to do that is to stay very present and remember that your opinion is not so important that it needs to be expressed. I might get some lashback on that. <laughs> but if you're going to practice, if you're an oversharer and you're listening right now and you're going to practice and you want to get out of this oversharing, then you, then you do need to practice listening and not making it about you and how you want to feel and especially not fixing them because one of the things that you said is people-pleasing. It's very likely that the people you're talking about are also somewhat people-pleasers or codependent fixers and they want you to feel better so what they're going to do is try to fix you in return if you can't recognize the dysfunction the codependence or the people pleasing in someone else then you'll learn who they are by their response to your oversharing and then you can hate to say it put a label on them and go oh this person's a fixer i know that if i overshare with this person they'll try to fix me and then you'll be able to weed out those people and realize with these people, I can only say so much. It's going to take practice because your brain goes on autopilot and you share, 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 share. All this information comes out. And with very trusted people, people that you trust, that you know are safe to express yourself with, then you can do some oversharing and they're not going to hopefully uh, cause any problems in your life or come after you in any way or judge you in any way. So I'm glad I had more than one thing than just recording some of this stuff comes to mind as I'm talking about it. But I think this will help. And uh, if you can record your conversation, at least your your side of it, even better. When I listen to myself, uh, this is how I have fine-tuned my show and tweaked it over the years. I listen to a lot of my own episodes. And when I find that I cringed, <laughs> that was a moment for me to go, why am I cringing? What am I cringing about? Oh, it sounded you know, silly. It sounded immature. It sounded this. It sounded that. Not that I'm censoring me from you, but I'm taking out the minutia that's not that important. Why did I need to talk about that? That was it was not even relevant, and it wasted another ten minutes of time. You know, things like that will occur to you. So practicing this will help you create new patterns in your brain, and learning to stay present, be present, be aware of everything outside yourself instead of inside yourself. When you're inside yourself and you're concerned about how others think of you and uh, concerned that you need to share as much as possible, all of this is inner thought. When you can be externally focused and be curious about your environment, about other people, and just be present for them and listening to them, suddenly what you have to say becomes much more important to them because you haven't said it all. In fact, you've hardly said anything and they want to hear more, then they're more receptive. Oh, and one final thing, all this stuff is coming to me. I think some people tend to think that uh, oversharers or over-talkers, uh, people that just seem to kind of go all over the emotional spectrum in a way, like they talk about something that really makes them really happy, and then they talk about something that makes them really sad or something that makes them really angry. Some people don't know how to connect with other people that way. Some people are more logic-based and they hear emotional stuff and they think that person's irrational. <laughs> so they will add an irrational label and now they think that you need help. 
you just don't know how people are going to respond until they do respond. And at that point, it might be okay, again, I hate to say this, to label them, at least in the respect of you know what to expect from them. You know to expect fixing from that person. You know to expect uh, judgment from that person, which is why it's so important to be in listening mode, present mode, and most people don't value my opinion mode, even though that's not true, but you develop a belief like that and you can go forward without feeling like you have to give your opinion every time or have to tell your story. You might build a small group of trusted people in your life where you can be that way. You know, there could be more going on in your life. There could be something else that causes you to be so expressive that maybe it's a problem. I don't know. But, uh, you know, without talking to you directly, but from what you've shared already, that's what I can come up with. I hope that helps. Thank you so much for sharing. And thanks for listening to another episode. We're going to finish up right after this. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. And uh, I don't have my notes in front of me. Hang on. <laughs> oh, here I am. Uh, I want to thank Beckers for her review of The Overwhelmed Brain book in Amazon. Thank you so much, Beckers. It was very kind of you to take the time and leave a review there. If you get a chance to leave a review for the book, whether it's in Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or somewhere else, let me know. And I'm going to call you out <laughs> on the air. Thanks again, Beckers. And I want to thank today's sponsor, Get Out of the Mess. If you're in the U.S. or Canada, give Asha a call, 678-355-8777, or visit getoutofthemess.com and find out if this legal insurance plan is right for you. Hey, it's right for me. It's right for her. It might be right for you, too. Check it out. And I want to thank members of the patron program who support this show through their membership. Yes, they get some goodies in the patron program, but just the idea that you're hanging out supporting this cause that I call the overwhelmed brain and helping me reach as many people as possible makes my heart warm. Thank you so much. And the Silver and Up patron members are going to be getting the emotional abuse worksheet. It's called the Mean Worksheet. That now has an official launch date. God, I hope I make this. <laughs> Today is uh, Sunday, August 20th, 2017. The official launch date for the Mean Worksheet is September 4th. 2017. However, I want you to know about the pre-orders. If you're not in the patron program, you can still get the worksheet at the pre-order price of $29. Yes, I'm building a buzz. I'm doing it on purpose. I do want it to be popular and I do want to get it in your hands for a lesser amount so that you don't have to pay the full price. I mean, it's still a very inexpensive worksheet. It's going to be $39 when it comes out, but if you pre-order before September 4th, you'll get it for $29. Either way, I'm not here to make a million bucks. I just want to get it in your hands. Because if you're struggling in any way in your relationship and you just can't figure out why it's happening, it is possible there is some manipulation going on or emotional abuse, verbal abuse, or something else that you just can't figure out. And what often happens very briefly is that you'll get into a relationship and the first hmm, two or three months are beautiful. They're everything you've ever wanted. Well, mostly. <laughs> and uh, after two or three months, things start changing and 
one partner feels as if they're starting to do a lot more things that the other partner doesn't agree with. And then uh, as time goes on, one partner starts to feel really guilty and responsible and upset and uh, more emotional. And the other partner is more, quote, rational and logical and analytical. And this is a common cycle in manipulative and emotionally abusive relationships. So there's a ton of signs and symptoms and also a way back to either nurturing the relationship back to health or separation if it's just too deep and it may not be repairable. That's what the worksheet is designed to do. It's to help you, first of all, pinpoint exactly what is happening that uh, you can't figure out because a lot of manipulation is behavior that you can't identify in the moment because it happens over time. And I've decided to pinpoint very specific behaviors, very specific thoughts that you have uh, when you're being manipulated. And if you don't know you're being manipulated, this highlights uh, everything that happens in a manipulative relationship and on and on and on. It contains a 140 plus checklist items that uh, give you a score at the end that classify you uh, into a certain category of how deep the manipulation and or emotional abuse goes. And of course, I don't just highlight those things for you. I also give you resources to help nourish you so you can regain your power and uh, help you communicate better with the manipulative person. And sometimes that's near impossible because if they truly are manipulating, then they're going to continue manipulating in any way they possibly can so they can get what they want, how they want it, when they want it, so on and so forth. So anyway, I want you to check that out. Go to theoverwhelmedbrain.com forward slash mean and pre-order it today. It's almost ready and I better have it ready <laughs> by September 4th. Uh, and now I'm creating accountability by putting myself out here and just saying it's going to happen. And uh, my plan is to have three audio interviews with people who have been in manipulative relationships and gotten out and are now out there helping other people. I already have one recorded and uh, it was wonderful. And there's going to be a couple more just in case uh, you want to hear how other people have struggled through a relationship like this and gotten out and started the healing process. Really, really powerful stuff, uh, especially for people who may not even know they're in a manipulative relationship. This might be one of those revealing workbooks. So check it out, theoverwhelmedbrain.com forward slash mean and get it for $29 before September 4th. After that, it goes up to $39. Still a good deal, but I want to give you the best break I can. And finally, thank you to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for some of the music transitions in The Overwhelmed Brain. And just a quick reply to a quick message on somebody who asked about going no contact. You know, I was just talking about the manipulative and emotional abuse worksheet. And uh, sometimes when you get out of a manipulative relationship, you have to go what's called no contact. Not all the time, but sometimes. And that's because um, any form of contact is a form of manipulation to some people. So if you are the victim of manipulation or emotional abuse and your partner or your ex uh, is trying to reach you, so they call you on the phone, they leave voicemails, they send texts, they send emails, uh, they walk into your door at home. My girlfriend told me that. She said during or after her divorce from her husband, he would just walk in her house as if he still lived there, even though he had another place to live. 
And so she got really ticked off <laughs> and said, you are not allowed to do that. What are you doing? But this is what happens that uh, people like this, they just think they own you and they think that their time is important and yours isn't. And they can show up anytime, anyhow, any way. So this concept of no contact comes into play. And um, somebody wrote to me and asked me, you know, how do I go no contact? I still have a person in my life that keeps trying to reach me and he's very toxic and he's texting me and getting me through Facebook. And I'm here to say that uh, no contact is exactly that. No contact is one of those things where you go all out. And I'm talking all out. If they're in your phone, you delete them. If you are connected to them in Facebook and you can see their messages and see their posts and they can reach you through messaging, unfriend them and block them. If they call you 10 times a day, change your phone number. I know these are extreme, but this is what no contact means. You do everything possible so that they cannot reach you because once they do, then any word that comes out of their mouth is part of their manipulation. You know, is this 100%? Is this always going to be the way it is? You know, I don't know. But I think it's better that if you've had struggle with someone and they've been emotionally abusive, that you do need to treat them as if every word that comes out of their mouth is a method to cause you to do something for their selfish gain. If you treat every word that comes out of their mouth that is something to please them and hurt you, then you will have uh, less trouble going no contact. You may have trouble going no contact if there are ways they can reach you. If they are, if they live a mile away and they're always showing up and, you know, that's physical presence that's sometimes hard to avoid. But, you know, it might mean changing the locks. It might mean calling the police, saying you feel threatened. It might mean a lot of things. No contact is complete blackout of the person as if they don't exist anymore. So if you can't stand someone always texting you or sending you emails or showing up at your house, you need to do everything possible to block it. Now, it's not only just to keep them out of your life, but what this does to the manipulator is they start to realize that no matter what they do, you are unreachable. And that is vital. If you make yourself more and more and more unreachable, Eventually, even a cat watching a hole in the wall waiting for a mouse to come out will leave. And they will come back every now and then waiting for that mouse. But if the mouse never comes out, the cat gets the message. So this is what you want to do is if there's anyone out there that has any type of stalking or predatory behavior and just will not leave you alone, no contact, full block in every possible way. And uh, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but it's my ex and we share custody with a kid. Totally. I get that. So what you have to do is go to the most limited contact and only one form of contact if you can. Now that might have to be court mandated. I don't, I don't know. There are multiple ways to go no contact. But yes, when you have something in common and you have to kind of stay in touch, then if you have to be in contact, then here's what you do. You be cold and factual. Don't let your emotions get involved. As soon as your emotions get involved with a manipulative person, they have you. If they know they can pull at your heartstrings or press your buttons, 
and they do certain things or say certain things to make that happen and you actually get your buttons pushed, they have you. So the idea is to, and I told a client this once and she hated the idea. <laughs> I said, you have to be a cold-hearted B-I-T-C-H or a B-A-S-T. You know, you have to be a cold-hearted person if the person will not leave you alone. If they will not take no, leave me alone as an answer, then you have to show it in your mannerisms and in your speech and in your doing anything you can to block them. So there is my answer to the person who wrote and said, how do I go no contact? I mean, he keeps trying to reach me and he keeps finding ways to reach me. You just block every avenue so that the person is less and less successful. I hope there are not too many people out there dealing with this, but if you are, I wish you the courage and the confidence and um, the flexibility to be someone you're not for a while. Because that's the hard part, right? You don't want to be this person. You don't want to be cold. You don't want to block every single avenue because you're probably kind and generous and maybe talkative and friendly. But you do have to be very flexible and give them what they need so they will back off. And how can you be flexible? Well, you got to keep your mind open so you can step into your power because that's where flexibility comes. You know if you're flexible and you can show up as this person, then maybe this other person will stop bugging you so much. And if they don't, just be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. Always take steps to grow and evolve. You are powerful beyond measure. And above all, and this is something I absolutely know to be true about you, and don't let anyone else tell you otherwise, you are amazing. Amazing.